I've always found it striking in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul says certain things happened that were part of these gospel matters of first importance. And he mentions the death of Jesus. We wouldn't think for a moment he would omit that. He mentions Jesus was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. We wouldn't be surprised that he includes that. Death and resurrection are so key to what makes the gospel good news for sinners. He does mention, though, he died for our sins, Christ did, according with the scriptures, in accordance with the scriptures. And not only did he die for our sins, he was buried. He just mentions that there before raised from the dead, accordance with the scriptures, all of that death and resurrection we proclaim. But burial, he just takes some words in a letter that was already long. He's in chapter 15. And yet while he is so deeply into a letter talking about so much, he even spares words to say, and he was buried. We should reflect on why that actually matters, that he was buried. The death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, is there an emphasis on the burial of Jesus. And we find that not only is Paul emphasizing that, every one of the Gospels tell us this too. In Matthew 27, the account of his burial. In Mark 15, the account of his burial. Luke 23, tonight, the account of his burial. John 19. Each of the Gospel writers tell you not only that he died, not only that he rose, but give you a brief account. He was buried. They're giving you names and details. And why do you need that testimony? We could reflect on a myriad of reasons. Here are three. The burial of Jesus reminds us of a genuine humanity. He did not appear to be human. It wasn't some apparition. It wasn't some kind of spiritual presence that had some kind of at least appearance, semblance of humanity. A body was buried. This was a real humanity. Jesus was the Word become flesh. In fact, the burial confirms the death. You bury the dead. The emphasis on the burial reminds us of what has just happened. Why would they bury him? Because a death has occurred. People are handling a body for burial because the body's died. And they're going to handle it in a way that's in keeping with their customs. So the burial of Jesus, it reminds us of a genuine humanity. It reminds us of a death that has occurred. It also tells us why the empty tomb matters. A body was placed there. You need to know that the burial account is what it is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, mentioned as well by Paul, because witnesses came to the tomb on the first day of the week, and the body was not there. So the, the burial of Jesus is a transition. It moves from the death on the cross, the resurrection from the dead. In between, we are reminded that a body will not be there that was put there on the day of his death. There will be a resurrection on the first day of the week. And that means the question of those witnesses, disciples, the early church who were hearing this message and believing, they had to deal with that question, what happened that made the tomb empty? And the burial of the body sets up that question when that body's no longer there. 
physical burial was actually quite important to the Jews. The burial account tonight is unusual in the ancient practice of crucifixion, however. If you cared for a relative or a friend who passed away, it would be customary for you to deal with their body in a time of mourning and lament for the dead. There are some exceptions that in the ancient world would have been widely known, and that was a crucified person would be despised by their family for the shame brought on them. They would be needless, they would uh, be uh, rightfully and and, uh, understandably ostracized in the minds of other family and friends because dastardly crimes and treasonous activities and things like that, murder and insurrection, lead to a crucifixion. There was not subsequent care and efforts made to care for the bodies of the crucified. What was common that we know from Roman records, those bodies would be removed from crosses and tossed in ravines to be eaten by animals, to be ravaged by the process of decay and the elements of weather. Bodies would sometimes be left upon crosses for hours and hours devoured by birds and other predatory beasts that could reach them from the ground. Therefore, the story tonight takes us to a scene on a cross where someone comes and asks for the body of a crucified man. And that was not common. Some names to know tonight, or groups I should say. Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned. That's the first one to know. And then a larger group, women from Galilee, that are going to be mentioned as witnesses of this burial. We're going to think about Joseph and this larger group of women that are singled out by the writer. Look with me at the character of this man, Joseph. In verses 50 and 51, we're introduced to a man that we have not met. It is kind of strange sometimes when you read in the gospel narratives to come across a character near the end that you haven't seen before. When you're reading near the end of the Gospels about a man named Herod, you've heard of him earlier. Pontius Pilate, well, he's been mentioned earlier in Luke 3. Disciples like Peter or John, oh, they've been mentioned earlier too. The presence of women, oh, they've been identified by name and by group earlier in the Gospel. So many characters that you see near the end of these Gospels, we've had them already. But here, here we meet a man with details given about this man that we have not met in Luke. And the only place in any of the Gospels that Joseph of Arimathea appears is at the burial of Jesus, and he's never seen again. This is his unique contribution, but what a contribution. Joseph of Arimathea is the one who handles the dead body of Jesus. That's not true of all the other people in the ancient world. That's not true of Jesus' close disciples. That's not true of Jesus' siblings and family. It is true only for Jesus' secret disciple, what you might call not one of the twelve, but one who is interested in seeking the kingdom and even someone positively disposed toward Jesus who asks for the body. What do we know about this man? In verses 50 and 51, we can identify seven characteristics about Joseph. The first thing we need to know about him is his name. It's a Jewish name. The man's name is Joseph. So therefore, the second thing we can know is that he's a Jew. We're given his name, and given his name, we can imply some ethnicity. 
His name is Joseph, and number two, he is a Jewish man, and number three, he's Joseph of Arimathea. Have you noticed that the gospel writers will sometimes attach a name to some kind of sibling or children or a city? And that's because Joseph was not an unusual name. Think of Mary's husband at the beginning of Luke. So Mary is married to someone named Joseph. Jesus grows up in a household under a man named Joseph with several other siblings, brothers and sisters. This is a man named Joseph, and this is not the Joseph of Jesus' household growing up. There was a Joseph present at Jesus' birth. This is a different Joseph present at Jesus' death. This is a Joseph from a Jewish town called Arimathea. It's about 20 miles from Jerusalem. He's from there, but apparently he lives in Jerusalem because he owns a family tomb. More on that in a moment. So his name is Joseph. He's a Jewish man. He's from the town of Arimathea. Fourthly, we're told he was a member of the council. We need Luke 22 to remember why that matters. This council is not some local social club. Oh yeah, you know, the group or this board or this council's gathering on that evening. This council refers to the Jewish ruling body known as the Sanhedrin. This is the council from Luke 22 that condemned Jesus with charges and said, have we heard enough already? The high priest said, we don't need any further witnesses. He's incriminated himself. It tells us he was a member of the council. Likely then very aware of the goings on in the prior hours of late, late Thursday night, meaning early hours of Friday morning, after Jesus was arrested and brought to the Jewish proceedings and then the Roman proceedings that followed. Joseph is in town. He's, for the, he's there for the Passover. And we also know in John's gospel, he's associated with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is not mentioned in Luke 23. We can borrow that information from John's gospel to see how both Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are going to express care toward the body of Jesus. So the fourth characteristic is he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. And then number five, he's a godly man. How do we conclude that? The end of verse 50 calls him a good and righteous man. For Luke to describe a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin as a good and righteous man, that is differentiating him, isn't it? From the other members of the council that were blaspheming and mocking and falsely accusing Jesus, this man is not like the others. He's a good and righteous man. He's a godly man. I think when the reader reads this, we're immediately relieved. Because other Jewish leaders or members of the Sanhedrin, chief priests or the high priest, they don't come across as good and righteous people. Joseph of Arimathea is. This is not a man who's just clean outwardly, but a rotten scoundrel in his heart. Instead, he is a good man and a righteous man, and it's an evaluation of his spiritual state. It tells us in verse 51, a sixth characteristic. Joseph is a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. Luke 22 tells us what decision and action. The condemnation of Jesus with false witnesses and accusations, charges that even Pilate said Jesus wasn't guilty of. 
He, Joseph of Arimathea, did not agree with or submit to that decision. This means that in the casting of the votes, he was not a vote to condemn Jesus. He had not consented to their decision and action. That would have been very difficult, especially if these were visible votes. Here is a member of the Jewish leadership, the ruling body, who is in disagreement with what the majority, it seems, wants done. And then lastly, the seventh characteristic. Joseph is a man of hope. It tells us he was looking for the kingdom of God. You know who that reminds me of is the one criminal on the cross that looks to Jesus with faith and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The man on the cross next to Jesus was looking to the kingdom and believed he was with the king. Joseph of Arimathea is looking for the kingdom of God. And his hopes and his ideas about what this means, it's wrapped up with Jesus. It's tied up with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And Joseph of Arimathea doesn't believe the council got it right. That Jesus was some blasphemer, some messianic fraud. Joseph of Arimathea does not agree with that, which implies then the opposite. That Joseph is positively postured toward Jesus, open to Jesus' claims, thinking about the kingdom in light of this one who is proclaimed the son of David and whose very title above his head said king of the Jews. Joseph is a man of hope looking for the kingdom of God. We think about these seven characteristics of this man. We've not met him before and we're given a lot of information of Joseph of Arimathea. Look at his request with me in verse 52. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now you couldn't just go to Pilate. He's a governor, a procurator in the region. And you couldn't be a Jew in a village, come to Jerusalem and say, you know, I, uh, while I'm in town, uh, I think you just need to, I'd like an audience with uh, the governor. I think you just need to take me to Pilate. I have some concerns, some questions. I'd like to see Pilate about a matter. That just doesn't happen. Which means in the providence of God, Joseph of Arimathea has a standing in which when someone says to Pilate, Joseph of Arimathea is here, Joseph of Arimathea gets to see Pilate. This matters. We learn in the other Gospels that Joseph of Arimathea is a wealthy man. He is a respected member of the Sanhedrin. He is a good and righteous man. And therefore, this Sanhedrin has been in concert or conversation with the Roman leadership earlier in the hours beforehand. So Joseph of Arimathea knocks at the door. You know, I'm implying here some uh, imaginary license. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea knocks at the door. And Pilate is going to have a conversation with this man. And what does it concern? Well, Pilate would love to be done with Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, he's literally washed his hands of it. I'm ready to be done with this whole matter. Well, someone shows up at the office and they want to talk about Jesus. Still, more about Jesus. The man's dead. The man's been crucified. What more? Now, ordinarily, if somebody is requesting the, the dead body of a relative, not be, this isn't just taking into account a crucified victim, but someone who has died and can get access to this body, 
family or friends, that's what you expect. Even John the Baptist had this happen for him. He gets beheaded and his disciples come and ask for his body and they go and they take care of it. Jesus' family do not come to Pilate. Jesus' close disciples do not come to Pilate. Who comes to Pilate? Joseph of Arimathea. Not one of the twelve. Not related to Jesus. And he comes and he says, I want the body of Jesus. In fact, Mark 15, 43 says Joseph took courage and went to Pilate. That stands out to me as a reader. He took courage and went. It says to me, a matter of risk is involved in what Joseph is going to do because he has some standing among the religious leaders. He's on the judicial ruling body called the Sanhedrin. He's a person who casts votes and they they are aware, perhaps, that Joseph has not consented to their decision. And if Joseph has previously kept his devotion and intriguedness toward Jesus private, it's about to get very public. Because here is a man, isn't that Joseph of Arimathea? Isn't that the wealthy man? What's he doing going toward the cross? And if any soldier were to stop Joseph of Arimathea, Joseph knew, I must deal with Pilate first. I must have the procurator or the governor's green light so that nobody will get in my way, no red tape to go through, no forms to fill out. Pilate has said, he can have the body. Nobody else is asking for it. So he goes to Pilate and he asks for the body of Jesus and he took courage, Mark tells us, to do so. His life could have some implications socially, politically, economically. This is a decision that will no doubt come with a matter of cost. But for Joseph, his heart toward Jesus is such that he will march to the office of Pilate and he will ask for the body of Jesus. One of the reasons for asking for the body of someone, especially with the Sabbath the next day, is Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 to 23. That those who commit a crime punishable by death and who are hanged on a tree, the body is not to remain on the tree, but should be buried the same day because a hanged man is cursed by God and would defile the land. And even if the governing authorities were not so keen in all of the Jews applying such efforts on just any day of the week, it was certainly understandable to treat the Sabbath as a holy day of rest. And a body was not to be dealt with on the Sabbath day. It was the kind of thing you would expect to be done earlier and not on the day of the Sabbath. It would, if you will, violate the laws of the Sabbath. So Joseph asked for the body of Jesus Immediately, immediately, Jesus dies at approximately 3 p.m. on Friday, the ninth hour of the day. After a three-hour period of darkness and earthquake and cry of a loud voice, it is finished and the tearing of the temple veil. When Jesus dies, Joseph kicks into gear. He knows Jesus is dead. And what that suggests to me is that Joseph may be someone in that vicinity who is waiting for that to happen. Joseph knows what he's got to do. He knows who he's going to approach to ask. And he knows what must happen quickly. It tells us in verse 53, the news about the burial of the body. 
Joseph of Arimathea, it says, then he took it down. I want you to just ponder that for a moment. He took it down. Now, I'm not saying he couldn't have had help in the Roman soldiers who are already breaking the legs of the other criminals and retrieving them from the, uh, the crosses to be tossed aside that the land might not be defiled because of a hanged body. He may have had help, but he is intimately involved here. A wealthy man of high political and religious standing, it might have seemed quite strange to the onlookers for him to be doing this. In fact, some in the crowds might have thought, doesn't he have people to do that for him? (laughs) Here is Joseph of Arimathea. What is he doing? He's getting his hands dirty. He's going up and tugging at limbs and he's holding Christ and getting him down from the cross. And here it is a mess coming on such a grisly scene. A man who had already been flogged with wounds and muscle and bone exposed and blood poured out and a spear in the side. Wounds and blood that is such a ghastly sight. And Joseph of Arimathea goes and gets involved in all of it. And he takes him down. And he begins to wrap him. He begins to wrap him in a linen shroud. The cleaning of the body of Jesus is something that was customary for the Jews. So that before the wrapping of the body in linen, the body was to be washed. Now that's for the case of any body that had died in any way. To treat the body for burial required a washing of the body. But in this case, here is the body of a crucified man. And therefore the washing and attentiveness given to this body is on a body that has gone through and endured a torturous death. Joseph is to wash the body and then wrap the body. The body was to be wrapped in one long piece of linen cloth, starting from one end of the body or the other, and then wrapped all the way down the end. And then separate from the body length wrap, a face cloth that would be wrapped around the head. The body would be wrapped then over and over again by this lengthy shroud or sheet, this linen garment. And then we're told in John 19 that Joseph and Nicodemus are involved. We're told that in addition to wrapping the body, they anointed the body with spices. And I want you to know this from John's gospel because it tells us Nicodemus supplies 75 pounds. That's more than some of my children weigh. All right, 75 pounds. That's an enormous amount of spices. If you've ever held a little plastic thing of spices or perfume in your hand and imagine 75 pounds of it, it's an extravagant amount. It's an expensive amount. It's the kind of thing that the wealthy could easily afford, but would especially be applied to someone of royal high standing. If... Nicodemus, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, John 19 tells us. You're just going to read John 3 for that scene, right? Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, what must they think and feel toward Jesus to purchase and supply and anoint such an extravagant amount of spices? We're told that Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes. It's just amazing, you know. Spices at the birth of Jesus, spices at the death of Jesus, treating him in a lavishly royal way. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And it's possible that Joseph of Arimathea, who's on the Jewish council, is also a Pharisee. 
along with Nicodemus. Sadducees and Pharisees, in other words, didn't necessarily get along and hang out, but the Pharisees would hang out with one another. And Joseph of Arimathea may have been one of those leaders like Nicodemus. So Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea prepare the body and we're told in verse 53 here, laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. The, the, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention the location of the tomb. We're told here that he laid him in a tomb, but John tells us it was near the place of crucifixion. In fact, John 19 says the, near, the place near the crucifixion, there was a garden And in the garden was a tomb that had been cut into the rock. It was actually Joseph of Arimathea's family tomb. And it was empty. He had purchased the place. He had called for the work to be done. The tomb had been hewn out of the rock. He had the resources and leverage to make this happen. It was all prepared lest people in his own family die and have nowhere to be buried. The bodies would go there. But no one's been laid there yet. The tomb had been cut into the stone and it was unused. Some have noticed the interest of the gospel writer earlier to say on the first day of the week, on Palm Sunday, Jesus rode on a donkey on which no one had ever sat. There seems to be, in other words, at the beginning of that week and at the end of that week, a sense of animal or tomb set apart for sacred purposes that no one had used before. Both the donkey on that Sunday and that Friday, the empty tomb, seemed to be set apart for the use of Jesus. But of course, Jesus was only borrowing this tomb. He would get it back entirely to Joseph's family in short order. We're told that he laid Jesus in the tomb, this wrapped body, in this tomb cut in stone. Now, tombs were places for honoring the dead. And we should imply here Joseph and Nicodemus honoring this one that they did not believe was some criminal justly condemned by the Romans. We're also told in Mark 15, 46, Joseph has ensured that there's a stone next to the opening. And as archaeological sites have revealed these kinds of stone-cut tombs, here's what you can see pictures of. You can see tomb openings where the ground declines to the entrance of the tomb so that a stone on the side could easily be rolled down, but not so easily rolled up. So it wasn't just a a flat area. They wanted a kind of leverage to easily roll the stone. And that's what Joseph does. Rolls a stone over the entrance of the tomb. This would have been a circular kind of stone weighing easily over a thousand pounds. What's the practical value of putting a stone to seal a tomb? At least a couple reasons. It would, first of all, prevent any animals from being drawn to any smells, not just from the body, but from any of the uh, spices, any of the perfume, any of the anointing, these animals would not have access. Also, it would prevent grave robbers who would love to steal expensive spices, elements of any uh, heirlooms, added to or inserted into the tomb, any of the linens that were expensive that could be taken along with the body. The stone would prevent that kind of access. Let's look together in verses 54 to 56. The last section of our passage tonight tells us not only did Joseph bury Jesus along with Nicodemus's help, we learn from John's gospel, 
there were some witnesses on this approaching Sabbath hour who would return to the tomb prepared at a later date. Verses 54 to 56 all hold together and they deal with the witness and the women in their preparation. Verse 54 says, it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. This indicates the day of his death must be Friday. Now, on occasion, you can find articles written by this minority position here or this minority position there that suggest Jesus died on an earlier date of the week. And that's because on the internet you can find anything. Uh, arguing any position under the sun, including positions that argue Jesus was crucified much earlier in the week. Of course, the problem with such arguments is the very text of the Gospels. The Gospels tell us that he was removed from the cross because that evening Sabbath was coming. And if you know the Old Testament, the Sabbath is the seventh day of the week all the time. It doesn't rotate throughout the days of the week in the Old Testament. It's the seventh day. If the Sabbath was nearing, then the day of Jesus' death was the sixth day of the week. And it was the day of preparation for that Sabbath. And the Sabbath was beginning in verse 54. This helps us see Jesus' death was on the sixth day of the week. And he rested on the Sabbath day like a faithful Jew. It tells us in verse 55 the women who had come up with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. You know what we noticed on Wednesday night together? Verse 49 told us, this is the last verse of our passage Wednesday night, that his acquaintances were standing at a distance, but not just acquaintances. The women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching his death on the cross. And you know what these women see? You know, here they are standing at a distance and they see someone come to approach the body of Jesus. They see this wealthy man, and maybe they were familiar with his standing. And they see him there along with the soldiers, and the body of Jesus is getting removed. This other man, this Pharisee named Nicodemus, he comes, and they begin to wash the body. They wrap the body. The body is taken to a nearby location. You know what these women do? Well, we're going to follow those guys. Uh, you know, we're going to see where, he's, where they're going with the body. You know why the women knew where to go on the Sunday morning? Because they knew the tomb where Jesus was buried on Friday evening. They followed. They weren't going to be coming on the first day of the week thinking, I know he's here somewhere. All right, you know, let's look for some tombs and let's see maybe some ground there, some fresh footprints. You know, they're not having to investigate or use any clues. They go to the tomb of Joseph Arimathea, which had been hewn from a rock and a stone freshly rolled in front of it. They see the place. They saw the tomb, verse 55 says. They saw how his body had been laid. These women witnessed the death of Jesus. They witnessed the burial of Jesus. And they'll witness the body no longer there on the first day of the week. These witnesses of the burial will become those voices saying to the disciples, the body of Jesus is not there. They know where to go on the Sunday morning. What will they do in the meantime? Well, in verse 56, the last passage of Luke 23 tells us, then they returned. Well, return to where? Well, we don't know exactly where. They're traveling together to this little tomb location. Did they go back to the scene of the crucifixion? Did they return to their own homes? Something like that's probably implied. And they prepare spices and ointments. 
And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. If they're preparing spices and ointments, what are they going to do with those? Well, it's not for themselves. And it's not for criminal number one on the left and criminal number three on the right. It's for that man who died on the middle cross, whose tomb they just visited with Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. They plan to go and deal with the body. And Mark chapter 16 tells us that on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb and they were concerned, by the way, on who was going to help them with the stone. They're preparing spices and ointments. Because they believe after the Sabbath, they're going to go to the tomb and have help with a stone to anoint and care for a dead body. They're preparing spices and ointments because they're not expecting to go to that tomb after the Sabbath and find the stone rolled away and the tomb empty. If they were expecting an empty tomb on the third day, they wouldn't be preparing spices and ointments and then resting. What a waste that would be. They don't think any of this is going to go to waste. They're expecting in their piety and in their faithfulness to keep the Sabbath as holy. And then on the first day of the week, as soon as the Sabbath ends, as soon as dawn begins to break, they're going to make their way to that tomb where they witnessed the burial of Jesus, whom they loved and followed, and they're going to express their affection and care on his dead body. Jesus rested on the Sabbath day. And he will rise on the first day of the week. This is filled with Genesis echoes in this sense. Jesus is the last Adam, isn't he? Adam was created on the sixth day of the week. And Jesus dies on the sixth day of the week. And Jesus rests on the Sabbath day like God rests in Genesis 2. And Jesus will rise from the dead on the first day of the week to dawn a new creation for humanity that has been marred by sin and death. Jesus will rest on the Sabbath and rise on the first day of the week. And this Sabbath, coming toward a resurrection on the first day, will shift things for the disciples that will follow. Their very pattern of worship will be affected. They will still go to the synagogues and they will preach to the Jews on the seventh day of the week, but they will try to show Christ from the Old Testament scriptures as the king who had come and died and risen and buried in between. And after rising from the dead as Lord of heaven and earth should be confessed and trusted and followed, and they will gather as believers in households on the first day of the week. And that change is remarkable. I love the way B.B. Warfield puts it. Warfield says, Christ took the Sabbath into the grave with him and brought the Lord's day out of the grave with him on the resurrection morning. And that shifts in the mind of the disciples all that they think, because in the resting on the seventh day of the week, that was the climax of God's, let's call it, old creation with Genesis background. Why does the early church gather on the first day of the week? Because nothing less than new creation could explain such a shift of Jews knowing the Old Testament scriptures. 
It's the surpassing greatness and wonder of the resurrection of Christ that required such a devotion and worship on the first day of the week. So here we leave our Lord in the tomb, resting on the Sabbath day, the Passover hours having unfolded, and Jesus the Passover lamb slain. I love the way a preacher once put it. In Genesis 22, we see Abraham and a lamb offered for his son. We see in Exodus chapter 12, lambs that are slain, one for a family. We see in Leviticus 16, the practice of the Day of Atonement, a lamb given for a nation. But in the Gospels, we see a lamb given for the world. It doesn't get broader and grander or more epic than the work of Jesus on the cross, surpassing all the sacrifices and offerings from any of the shadows of the Old Testament. Here, the Lamb of God is slain, taken down, washed clean, wrapped, and laid in a tomb to rest on the Sabbath day. 